Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of The Lighter Side of Serial Killers here on the Boombastic Media Network. I am your host, Keith Revere. I'm an author and collector of true crime art and memorabilia. This is the only podcast with a serial killer's call the show. But there are a few exceptions. Sometimes I might fly solo. Or if there's a very, very special guest, I'll certainly make an exception. And today is one of those times. Uh, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Scott Brown. Now, if you are a true crime fan like I am, and you can't turn on the TV without <laughs> something true crime on the show. So you've probably seen him if you watch any documentaries from A&E, Discovery Channel, Oxygen ID, even a Travel Channel. You will recognize him <laughs> if you've seen him. He has one of my favorite books that he authored, Why We Love Serial Killers, The Curious Appeal of the World's Most Savage Murderers. Uh, and he has a show coming up. He has a live show. He's taken on tour. Uh, it's going to be at the Keswick. If you're in a tri-state area in Pennsylvania, uh, not too far out of Philadelphia, uh, on May 9th, it's called The Psychology of Serial Killers and Why They Captivate Us. Um, I think we should just let him tell us all about it. Now, so let's bring him in now. Hey, Dr. Scott, how are you? I'm good. I'm good, Keith. How are you? Good. Definitely good. Uh, hey, I really appreciate you taking the time with us uh, today. It definitely means a oh, lot. Oh, this is, this is, this is fun, um, and I, <laughs> you know, I appreciate it as well. Uh, I guess we can start with um, maybe giving a definition to everybody what sociology is, um, and then since the, really the focus of, of what you do with the live show and the books and your appearances and your podcast is society's fascination with serial killers and this true crime genre, I guess, that we're living in. Uh, what was it for you? Like when you started this journey of studying yeah. and now teaching, what was it? Uh, and what would you kind of hope to accomplish through all of it? Well, uh, those are, are all wonderful questions. And I'll try to um, uh, I'll try to get to them in uh, in the order you ask. Uh, so, you know, first and for foremost, uh, I am. Uh, a social scientist. I have a, a PhD in, in sociology, concentrating in criminology and a master's degree in, um, in criminal justice. But I actually started my career uh, for the first 22 years of which were spent in the entertainment, media and advertising fields. Ah, okay. Because what happened was, was this. As a child, I was always fascinated by by behavior and motivations, what drove people to do certain things. And I was, on the one hand, intrigued by the dark side of the human condition, what drives people to commit terrible, you know, wicked deeds. But then on the other hand, on a much more practical, pragmatic sense, what makes people buy Crest toothpaste rather than Colgate toothpaste? I was interested in marketing and, and advertising. Nice. And so in my, uh, my Bachelor uh, uh, of Arts uh, degree years during that time frame, I uh, was a young man, 20, 21 years old, and I decided to opt where I thought the money was, and that was in advertising. So <laughs> for the next 22 years or so, I spent in that field and I um, was relatively successful. I actually was a vice president at NBC television network for a while. And um, uh, I was involved in launching and, and uh, promoting things like the legendary Seinfeld show. So this was back in the, you know, the early nineties. Oh, yeah. um, I was involved with the Olympics. I was involved with various other sports, mm -hmm. uh, Wimbledon tennis, and also the news and it's where I was involved with the news that I realized that that old journalistic adage that if it lead, excuse me, if it bleeds, it leads yeah. <laughs> really applies. Yeah. And what I realized is the more sensationalized a topic or an individual or a case, 
the more people relished it and would tune in. So Jeffrey Dahmer in 1991, I was there when, when Dahmer was caught and it became a worldwide sensation. O.J. Simpson, you know, many of us remember the O.J. case and the, you know, the slow Bronco chase down mm, the highway in yeah. California. And then, um, you know, his trial that was must see TV. All of these things stuck with me. And I and I I really began to see that certain individuals, certain criminals, certain cases become larger than life. And I realized that serial killers really fall into that category. And after 9-11, I decided to follow my other uh, passion, and that is to study criminology. And as I said, I, I got a couple of advanced degrees, and I became a college professor. I was teaching at Drew University, which is a, uh, a, a college about 25 miles outside of Manhattan, west of Manhattan in New Jersey. And I was teaching criminology courses and, and forensic uh, uh, science types of courses. And what I saw and what I noticed is anytime the two words serial killers came out of my mouth, it was like an electric shock went through the, <laughs> the seats of my students. <laughs> they they yeah. would just become riveted. And, and I said, what is going on here? What is this fascination? And then I remembered, you know, my media days, my days at NBC and, in, you know, in the media. And I realized that we as a society really, in many ways, glorify and I and 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 there is glorification in a in a very um you know I think a very uh immoral sense in 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 much of what the, the media does but just in general we give them so much attention that we turn them into what I have coined a, a term called celebrity monsters and we we they've taken on almost uh, uh gothic and mythical proportions individuals like Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer so um uh, I was fascinated by this I decided to explore it. I interviewed uh, law enforcement officials and, and politicians about this. I interviewed the public about the fascination with serial killers, the news media, and even the serial killers themselves. Mm. I directly reached out to uh, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, and Dennis Rader, buy and torture kill. Okay. And because I wanted to get it firsthand from the individuals themselves, and especially attention-seeking serial killers like BTK well, and yeah. Son of Sam. Mm -hmm. And all of this led, ultimately, to the writing of my book, which is Why We Love Serial Killers, The Curious Appeal of the World's Most Savage Murderers. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm aware of the irony of the title, <laughs> and this book is as much about our fascination with serial killers as it is the serial killers themselves. I mean, I do try to touch on every topic, you know, everything you always wanted to know about serial killers, but were afraid to ask. Mm -hmm. But it is very much taking a mirror and turning it around and looking at ourselves. Yeah. Um, and um, I'm very happy. I'm, I'm so happy that the book has gotten traction both in the classroom as well as with uh, the general public. And, um, and, and I intended it to be, you know, not a forensics book, not and certainly not a, uh, a glorification book, but a real deep dive into serial killers and how they fit in, into our psyche and our and our and our um, uh, public consciousness. Oh, for sure. Uh, you mentioned I want to unpack a little something you said about the media, because it's not just our fascination, but it's the media's fascination also. And it's almost like when when I started reaching out to them. From I'm absorbing what the media is telling me from movies. They're portraying these um, 
they're almost like monsters. You know, they don't come they can't talk to you a normal conversation. You know, they got drool coming out of their mouth. These like you had mentioned these type of monsters. But then when I started reaching out to them myself, I'm like, we're talking about stock market tips. You know, we're talking mm-hmm. about highly intelligent things with, during the COVID lockdown, you know, vaccinations and things. But on the other hand, they also portray almost like an empathy card. You know, I mean, you mentioned Frankenstein, the monster of Frankenstein in your book too. But the Michael Myers, the uh, Freddy Kruegers, the Jasons, or like if a truck breaks down full of teenagers in front of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house, we're not rooting for them to live. You know, we want no. it's like pushing like this. So are we just, I mean, through obviously politics too, are we just as a culture, just like sheep buying into everything the media is telling, whether the monsters or whether they're empathetic, um, because the reality is nine times out of 10, they can blend in with society just like me and you, you know, aside from yeah. the obviously dark side. So what does it say about the media's fascination that they're telling us multiple stories when really none of it's reality in you know, most cases? Yeah, well, that's that certainly is a great question. And the, uh, the, the media, you know, and, I, and as, I, as I said, I worked in that area for 22 years, so I think I can speak with some um, conviction and knowledge, is that, you know, the, the media follow the path. You know, they, they, they look where the, the sheep are headed and they follow it and they tend to reinforce it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, 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 they're followers. They're not leaders. They don't want to take chances. Advertisers rarely will take a risk on something. They, they want to they will um, uh, support something that they believe is already in the status quo. Okay. And, yeah. and, and to your question, to your question about, um, you know, the, the demonization and so forth, um, you know, there, there really are. There are empathetic monsters, and then there are the the unempathetic monsters. The an unempathetic monster would be the um, the Michael Myers or the Freddy Krueger, where they are just there as one dimensional, um, almost demons, uh, the very personification of evil, if you will, yeah. and and that fits a very simplistic horror narrative. But the ones that we really love are the ones that have human qualities and we can relate to even Dracula. You know, if you if you read the Bram Stoker uh, novel, um, he was actually a, a, you know, a very a romantic and uh, even fragile individual. And and uh, and the Frankenstein monster, too. He was just misunderstood. He wasn't trying to hurt anybody. Yeah. He was just misunderstood. Um, we identify with that because we see the humanness in them that we see in, in, in ourselves. But I think what happens and the reason and you're and actually your audience might be interested in this. You know, I as the social scientist, I am. I did a huge database um, research on articles that were written about serial killers in the major news media, print news media between 1995 and 2015. So over a 20 year period. And I searched articles in publications like Time Magazine and Newsweek, as well as uh, daily newspapers like um, uh, uh, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune, etc. Excuse me. And I did a database search of literally thousands of articles during that 20 year time period. And what I found is that more than 50 percent of them contain either the word evil or monster or both. Ah. And what which I think is very telling, you know, in terms of this, you know, sort of mythical and um, uh, 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 larger than life monstrous 
uh, terminology that we that we like to use. And the reason that we do it, I believe, and, and, and again, I've done a lot of research in this area, is we you know, human beings are empathetic creatures. And we try want to try to understand things, even the dark side, even the you know things that we consider you know bad or evil, and like it or not, serial killers are human. They're you know they're not Freddy Krueger. They are they're not Michael Myers. So we try to understand them. But the problem is that what they do, their actions are so incomprehensible that it's very difficult to put our wrap our minds around it. Yeah. You know, we we'd like to have some peace. We'd like to say, gee, I understand it now. Uh, I get yeah. it. It's not so it's not so frightening after all, because I understand it, but that's almost impossible to do. So then we engage what we in sociology call reductionism, which is if we don't understand it, just slap a label on it and get rid of it. You know, Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't understand Jeffrey Dahmer. Well, you know, he's just pure evil. He's a he's a he's a monster. (laughs) Oh, really? Okay. well, all right. Now we're done. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now now we can go back to our day and move on because, you know, we figured it out. He's a monster (laughs) and he's evil. Um, and, and the media just pick up on that. It's very easy for them to slap those, you know, those labels on. Yeah. Um, it, I, something that's, that's fascinating, and I'm going to be talking about this, you know, in this uh, upcoming uh, show and, and tour that, I, that I'm doing. Um, I think that there's a bit of a conflation or um, a, a blurring of fact and fiction. And I think you can trace it back in many ways to, um, to Jeffrey Dahmer and Hannibal Lecter back in 1991. Uh, the, the, the folks who are old enough to remember this, the, that iconic film, Silence of the Lambs, was actually released nationwide in January of 1991. And that introduced the world to the iconic Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter, mm-hmm. who is now, you know, just you know, larger than life in, in um, you know, fictional mythology of serial killers. Later that year, just six months later, July of 1991, Jeffrey Dahmer was identified and apprehended. And he too was a cannibal. And Jeffrey Dahmer is the best example I can think of, of the serial killer who's so over the top in terms of what he did, dismembering and, and, and eating, you know, in some cases, yeah. drinking the blood of mm-hmm. his, of his victims, dissolving them in acid in, in his, in his uh, home, that the media conflated the two and Jeffrey Dahmer became the real life Hannibal, the cannibal Lecter. That's so true. That's right. And, and over time, Jeffrey Dahmer has really become a boogeyman in our pop culture, like Freddy Krueger and, and uh, Michael Myers. You can buy Jeffrey Dahmer action figures, trading cards, board games, there are jokes about Jeffrey Dahmer that 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 uh, are still popular to this day. Songs, poems, books, you name it. Jeffrey Dahmer has truly become a larger than life boogeyman. And um, and and that is what we do when things seem to be so incomprehensible that um, we, we we just don't know what to do with them. So uh, so let's let's turn them into something that's not no longer human. Mm-hmm. And of course. You know, in the United States, it's all about marketing. It's all about sales. So if you can sell a onesie baby outfit with Jeffrey Dahmer's face on it, people are going to do it if they buy it. And believe it or not, you can buy crazy stuff like that. You oh, actually yeah. oh, can buy sure. those things. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Unfortunately, I know a lot of people who create it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> for sure. There, there you go. There you go. There's a whole 
you know, you're, you, you, I know you're aware, um, but I don't, I don't know if your if your uh, audience is aware. There is a whole underground uh, marketplace for what's known as murderabilia. Yeah, which oh is yeah. The, I was definitely going to get into that with you. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, the collectibles, the artifacts of these yeah. infamous individuals. You can buy yeah. locks of of Charles Manson or Ted Bundy's hair from death row. Oh, yeah. You can buy them on, yeah. on the internet. Um, so it just shows that there is an appetite. Um, it's, uh, hopefully I didn't make a Jeffrey Dahmer joke there, but an appetite <laughs> for, you know, for these, these uh, diabolical individuals mm-hmm. and their artifacts. Yeah, his glasses. I knew the gentleman, well, there's a lot of people who had some of his, you know, memorabilia, if you want to call it that. His glasses were on the market for two hundred thousand dollars. Jeffrey Dahmer's glasses. Yeah, I know. I saw that. It's like wow. I saw that. That's it's just insane. It's it's absolutely insane. And um, and some of this stuff is actually authenticated. The um, I'm I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Richard Ramirez. You know the Night Stalker. Mm He married one of his groupies, which is another whole topic. You know, conversation we could have. Mm -hmm. uh, The groupies and. He died in prison some years ago of liver failure while he was on death row. And his widow now authenticates oh, yeah. his memorabilia. Uh-huh. So if you buy something that was once owned by, by Richard Ramirez, you get a little a letter of authentication from his widow. Yeah. You know, you, you can't mm-hmm. make this stuff up. No. This is just, you know, it's uh, truth. Truth in many ways is stranger than fiction. Oh, for sure. We could touch on that. You know, it's, while we're on the top, we can stay on that. Uh, the murderabilia, the true crime uh, memorabilia. Now, it's, it's a touchy subject. Like, I've been corresponding over 10 years. I, mean, I probably have over 300 pieces of artwork, greeting cards that they send me birthdays and holiday time, thousands of letters. You know, yep. it's almost like an investment for the future <laughs> if you really look at it. You know, how much if I actually wanted to put stuff like that on the market like that. But on one hand, you have the serial killers who are selling their artwork or the glasses right. or their shoes or anybody and whatever else they want to sell. Is okay. They're profiting from the notoriety and from the victims, and there's big backlash for that. But on the other hand, on the other hand, I'm kind of profiting from that. Writing books about serial killers differently, but I mean, you are with the tour and your book, so we're kind of on one hand both kind of profiting from serial killers and the notoriety and the crimes. But what are your thoughts on not the motivation of people? It's a different question of the motivation for people to put that stuff on the wall but serial killers selling that for profit um again off the backs of their notoriety when people like me and you are differently but kind of doing the same thing in a way what are your thoughts yeah no i i I fully understand your you know your your question and and i have considered this uh myself in fact i have a whole chapter of my in my book that is dedicated um to these very issues of murderabilia and fans and groupies and and the laws related to it and so forth and as i'm sure you know uh serial killers and for that matter um convicted convicts can't uh benefit directly from their infamy um in 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 terms of of uh, uh selling merchandise now what they tend to do is they tend to go through intermediaries. They'll, 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 they'll paint, uh, pictures the way John Wayne Gacy did, for example, of Pogo, you know, the, the, the clown, his, sure. his alter ego. Mm-hmm. And then they have middlemen who, who sell these things for them. And then money magically appears in their commissary accounts. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's, there's nothing to, you know, there's absolutely nothing to keep you or I 
from putting a donation in uh, any serial killer's prison uh, prison account. But what they can't do is receive direct payment for uh, selling their shirt, you know, or or uh, uh, or artwork. But 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 again, you know, there, there's this underground movement or underground marketplace that you know they end up uh, being compensated mm-hmm. and. And that is just, you know, uh, that's just wrong. You know, that, that's just wrong uh, morally mm-hmm. as far as I'm as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. But as to the attention of them, yes, I, as I corresponded with uh, the son of Sam and um, and uh, by, uh, BTK, I was well aware of the fact that I was giving them something that they craved, which is attention, uh, particularly BTK, because he is oh, a yeah. complete <laughs> psychopath. A complete psychopath and, and narcissist. He thinks he's the, you know, the, the smartest cat in town. Exactly. Um, and everyone should listen to him. Um, so I was aware of that. Um, and I will go for, so far as to say I have learned by, you know, my research or through my research and, and talking to many of these individuals, the absolute worst thing that you can do to a psychopath is ignore them. That's absolutely mm-hmm. the worst thing because they <laughs> crave, they, they oh, yeah. crave the attention. They, they, they want to be on a stage. They want to tell you how, you know, amazing they are. Um, so it is true. I mean, they, they are getting something out of the interaction, which is attention. Um, now, having said that, I think the benefits of studying these individuals and learning their behaviors, learning their motivations, for that matter, learning the uh, the, uh, the evolution of a serial killer, what how a serial killer in fact becomes a serial killer, are vitally important. Uh, and as I'm sure your listeners know. No one wakes up one day and says, today is a great day to be a serial killer. You know, (laughs) these individuals tend to evolve over over years, 10, 15 years um, in in some cases, even even longer. And there is definitely a, a progression of events and red flags that one can detect and um, and uh, identify over over time. So if we get better and we are getting better at identifying these red flags during childhood and adolescence, perhaps we can avoid uh, the creation of the next Ted Bundy or Mm -hmm. or, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, Mm -hmm. In some of these individuals, I firmly believe, uh, well, even David Berkowitz, if David Berkowitz had proper intervention earlier in his life, I think he might never have become the son of Sam. Yeah. Uh, I think the same thing with um, uh, with, with uh, Dennis, Dennis Rader, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps Jeffrey Dahmer as well. Um, the problem is their their problems and their pathologies were never identified in any meaningful way before they you know emerged as serial killers. When you, when you say red flags, uh, it was going to lead me to a question. Now, I was thinking as you were talking that. I, I couldn't. I can't remember. It was a TV show or a movie. It was Halloween, and you know, little kids dressed up in cute little cop costumes. Then a doorbell rings. Open the door. I, I don't remember if it's a guy or a girl. In no costume at all, just normal clothes. They're like, "What are you?" Well, I'm a serial killer because we dress like everybody else. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking of that. And when you had mentioned the signs, we kind of know the basic signs. Okay, they're dissecting roadkill. They're killing kittens. They're torturing animals. But what if? Um, what are the other signs? We might not really. Think about, like, for example, like a lot of my followers, not a lot, well, a small portion, I should say, their profile picture typically is Richard Ramirez or the Columbine shooters. They're the two mm. really popular ones. They're professing their love for them. 
yeah. literally I want to have their children. And, and that's all they post about, mostly on Twitter. Um, yeah. And they're teenage girls. Majority of them are teenage girls. Mm-hmm. So, one, what are some of the red flags aside from, you know, killing animals, so to speak? Um, and when does, from the profile picture, having a fascination turn into an obsession to possibly something worse? Like, what, what can a parent even do? You know, what are some of the red flags? Obviously, we think of horror movies and have Richard Ramirez as a profile picture, or it could be deeper. So what are some of those red flags? Yeah, well, that, those are great questions. So it's, it's, it's kind of two separate issues. Your question is, you know, how, how, how can one possibly identify and then what draws certain individuals to these people and become an obsession? Uh, is, is that correct? I, I think it yeah, sounds like yeah, two definitely. different questions. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so first of all, uh, identification. Um, the, the one thing that, and I'm asked this all the time, is there anything that serial killers have in common? Um, or, 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 and, or conversely, are they all the same? You know, is there variation or, or are they, um, one size fits all? Mm -hmm. And as I'm sure, you know, Keith, and, and, uh, through all of your experience, their serial killers are as different as night and day. They come (laughs) in every race, every ethnicity, ethnicity, gender identification, intellect, education, socioeconomic status, religion, politics, you name it. I mean, they, they're, they're, they're incredibly varied. But the one thing that they do all have in common is that killing serves some fantasy need that is both psychological, emotional, and visceral. Mm-hmm. It's almost, I like, I like to use the, the analogy of an addiction. It's almost like a heroin addict. When, when, when that craving comes for the next fix of heroin, they don't have a choice. It's not like, oh, I just, you know, I'm going to have a cookie instead, you know? Mm-hmm. No, they have to have that fix. Well, it's very similar for serial killers. Now, the thing is, that fantasy need that is served by killing is very different and varies by serial killer. Each one of them marches to a drum that only they can hear. It's an internal drum beat that, that is very, very idiosyncratic. Mm. Let me use an example. And I'm going to use an example of a serial killer that I know very well and talk about his fantasy progression and how he evolved into a serial killer over time. Um, Dennis Rader told me in our in our uh, correspondence that he recalls back around the age of 10 years old even you know pre pre puberty he was on his mother's or excuse me his grandmother's farm and he watched her chop the head off of a chicken to prepare dinner that night and as the blood squirted out of the decapitated chicken's neck he became sexually aroused wow at the age of 10 and he, he told me that even at that age, he knew this was probably off somehow, that this was not normal. He, he had he had the self-awareness at that time, but he loved it. He craved it. He held on to that little fantasy loop and he nurtured it over time and he would combine it with masturbation and become sexually aroused and satisfied by playing this this loop over in his head. And over time, it became much more sophisticated and um, detailed. He, he, he continued to be turned on, if you will, by things like bondage, um, torture, mm-hmm. harming things. And he was of an age that hit one of his favorite shows was 
the Mickey Mouse Club. And his favorite Mouseketeer was Annette Funicello. And he used to actually fantasize about tying up in bondage Annette Funicello, torturing her and raping her. He did this during his adolescence. And again, he would combine this with masturbation. Over time, he became a voyeur and a peeping Tom. Mm -hmm. He also became a a burglar. He would break into women's homes later in in adolescence and, and early adulthood, steal women's underwear. This was all part of his progression. Eventually, he began to what he called um, uh, troll uh, women. He would he would follow them home. He would sit in the bushes and he would take copious notes as he watched them inside their house. Sometimes he would take photographs. And again, this was part of the fantasy. He would he would um, sexually relieve himself again. And it ultimately reached a tipping point after about 15 years of doing all of this, that he couldn't take it anymore. Fantasy was not good enough, and he had had to act it out in real life. Now, this is BTK specifically, Mm -hmm. but this sort of progression is very typical of serial killers. So if you have a child that seems to have a callous indifference toward pain, seems to... uh, have lacking in affect, doesn't have the normal range of emotions um, in response to things, doesn't seem to respond to other other people's pain appropriately, is obviously preoccupied with death in any way. Um, in today's world, uh, gravitates toward pictures of, um, you know, gory, uh, bloody, uh, uh, you know, accidents and things like that. Um, those are all signs. Those are all potential red flags. Mm. And one should definitely uh, seek out professional help if you if you see these things. Because, again, if if a number of these individuals, including Dennis Rader, had been identified early on, we as a society may never had to um, experience BTK. Now, if somebody identifies someone in their youth or in adult, any age for that matter, of having these psychopathic tendencies. A, a big mm-hmm. part of my last book is brain abnormalities, studying a psychopathic mind where mm-hmm. portions aren't, especially the amygdala, that seems to be the key point of where the empathy lies, fear lies, the stopping and rationality point when those mm-hmm. things are not working, damage, head injuries and all that, whatever it may be. Well, now what? Okay, mm-hmm. we know that there's some type of abnormality. Um, if it is truly you know, of a psychopathic brain, or something's not quite working great, Treatment wise, um, like I, I'm a big proponent of prison rehabilitation. That's mostly what I you know, focus on in my life, or I should say the lack thereof in prison. Re- it's mostly just negative reinforcement. I was so happy to read your book where you really focused on positive reinforcement. And right. I've been banging that gong. I can't bang it loud enough. Every podcast, I always <clears throat> touch on that at least a little bit where you know, a big like Norway prison up in Norway, they started they're the lowest recidivism rate in the world and they're in their facilities. It's now it's less than 20%. It used to be about 22%. Now it's about 17% was positive reinforcement. Um, mm-hmm. Now like North Dakota has the lowest in America because they followed suit. Now they're like, you know, 20% recidivism rate. Everybody else is 70%. And just so the listeners know the odds that someone's going to reoffend usually between three to five years is approximately 70%. Yeah. So more than, more than two thirds. That's right. Yeah. And it's just a horrible now, one, what are your thoughts in general of prison rehabilitation or the lack thereof and positive reinforcement, but specific with serial killers? When you have a psychopath or a sociopath, 
and maybe obviously the difference between the two, is one more able to be rehabilitated than another? Uh, and there, there's some signs like James Fallon, uh, Dr. Adrian Rain, they're kind of leading the way as far as popularity of books go on serial killers and psychopathy and rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. But is it possible, number one, not to be cured, but are there baby steps? Are we improving in that area? I mean, what are your thoughts well, on that? Yeah, I mean these these are these are really 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 good questions, and and uh, that's a whole other show, really. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 also, um, uh, you know, I have some experience in in this regard as well. So, prison reform in general, as a society, we don't do very well. You know, yeah, um, uh, it, it, uh, politicians typically don't get elected by saying we're going to go soft on crime exactly. and we're, we're going to be warm, warm and fuzzy and we're going to try to rehabilitate. No, um, uh, politicians and district attorneys who are elected say we are going to get hard on crime. We're going to lock them up and we're going to throw away the key. Yep. You know, that's how you get elected. Um, so, no, we don't. We, we would rather spend money to build more prisons than to invest in meaningful rehabilitation. That's been my experience. Yep. Uh, now, uh, psychopaths and sociopaths, the, these individuals, as, as I'm sure you know, and, and many of your listeners know, the, these are not clinically regarded as mental illnesses. They are antisocial personality disorders, mm-hmm. according to the American Psychiatric Association. Um, that, I guess you could say, is good news in that they are not in the same category as um, someone who is psychotic or someone, uh, a paranoid schizophrenic. Um, so th- that that is good news there. But the problem is they're really, as far as I know, is not a meaningful cure uh, for, for these individuals. It's a, it's a personality disorder. And in the case of psychopaths, we believe that it's that they're born that way. They're simply born with a brain that is, if you will, wired differently, mm-hmm. that responds to stimuli and 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 reacts uh, differently. Now, they can be, however, managed extremely well in prison. Dennis Rader, who is the poster boy of psychopathy mm-hmm. um, and as well as malignant narcissism, is so proud of the fact that he has not had one infraction of any violation of any prison code since he has been locked up in 2005. So, you know, seven, what is that? 17 years now that he's been locked up. Mm -hmm. He has not had one infraction. And as a result, he gets little rewards, treats that he likes. He's a big fan of hamburgers and chocolate food. Yep. His favorite foods. (laughs) That's right. And they reward him with that. And he is so proud of that because part of the psychopathic uh, personality is to be very uh, reward based and enjoy accolades and being told how wonderful they are. So this reward based system fits very well with this with the psychopathic uh, personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as a result, it seems like a contradiction. But in the case of Dennis Rader, who is one of the most horrible, diabolical killers of the 20th century, he's actually a model citizen yes. in, in prison. <laughs> exactly. He doesn't create any problems, says, says please and thank you. You know, when he asks for something, like mm-hmm. he, he likes to draw. So when he gets his colored pencils, he says, please and thank you. Uh, I actually got to know one of his uh, uh, guards, one of, one of the uh, correctional officers there oh, okay. at his facility. And she said he's a perfect gentleman, wow. an absolute perfect gentleman. Wow. Um, Sociopaths, as you know, are a different 
than psychopaths. Um, sociopaths are more likely to be a product of their environment than, um, uh, you know, the old nature versus nurture. You know, if, if, if you look at it that way, psychopaths, nature, sociopaths, nurture. Gotcha. These okay. individuals are able to have an empathetic reaction or relationship with other living things sometimes and not others. I like to use the analogy of um, an, an, an appliance, like imagine a, a hairdryer. If, you, if that cord is pulled out of the wall, it doesn't work at all. When it comes to empathy, that's a psychopath. The plug is just pulled out. They can't feel it. A sociopath, it's like the cord is, the plug is half in and half out of the socket, and it works sometimes, and it doesn't work others. It's unpredictable. Oh, okay. That's okay. a sociopath. Right. And sociopaths are actually much easier to detect. So if you want to be, you'd save yourself um, and, and protect yourself from becoming a victim of one of these individuals, it's a lot easier to see a sociopath coming because they tend to be volatile. They tend to have mood swings. They tend to have uh, bouts of rage, whereas psychopaths are stone cold individuals, mm. just unflappable, which makes them, um, of course, the flip side is it makes them very effective killers if they are you know, led yeah. in that direction yeah. because they just don't they, they don't feel they don't they don't feel the fear. They don't feel the 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 empathy, the pity, the remorse that other individuals do. Now, what kind of leads to the question, you know, again, our mutual friends, so to speak, David Berkowitz, who I've known, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years myself, is almost like the poster boy for rehabilitation as mm -hmm. far as if you did not know his crimes. Um, and Roy, another question kind of ties into that with Dennis Rader, too. If you didn't know their crimes, just talk to them. You're like, oh, well, yeah, he's rehabilitated. You know, so if you were on the parole board and David came up or somebody who you've known over the years and like, man, it's, he's tearful in interviews, um, all the letters and times I've talked to him, um, very, very remorseful, but they're also master manipulators and they, I can be fooled, you know? Yes. So on the one hand, man, it's, yes, you should know he's been denied parole, but let's say his parole came up and you're on that parole board knowing what you know that. There's a good chance he can be completely re rehabilitated and live a, a wonderful life outside of prison the rest of his life. On the flip side, his crimes were so heinous, he doesn't deserve that, which what society would say, we don't care if he's rehabilitated, lock him up. Or mm -hmm. he could just be like Dennis Rader. He could just pull the wool over our eyes. So when mm -hmm. something like that, do you trust it? You know, the real, like something like David Berkowitz where, man, he seems so remorseful, but what will yes. we do when parole comes up? Yes. Yes. Uh, well, also a great question. And um, I, these two individuals, as I think I mentioned a little while ago, I picked them specifically when I was doing my research. Um, and the reason I picked them is they each gave themselves their own serial killer brand name. You know, uh, yeah, it, it, it's like it's like Coke and Pepsi. Well, you've got Son of Sam and BTK. You know, they gave them they society didn't name them. The media did not name it. They said, you will call me Son of Sam. You will call me buying torture kill for for their own but different reasons. They sought notoriety and attention and they wanted to horrify society. But that's where and then the fact that, of course, they killed people. That is where the similarities and they are two extremely different people in in my experience 
Dennis Rader is a completely unremorseful psychopath and malignant narcissist. Yeah, if, if you're not familiar with the term malignant narcissist, what is that? It's an individual who has all the narcissistic tendencies where the world revolves around me and I'm only concerned in, you know, how, how I'm affected. But you add to that sadism, then you have a malignant narcissist. He mm. likes to hurt people. Yeah. He wants to hurt people. Dennis Rader is is completely unremorseful today. In in our correspondence, he said, he said, Scott. How dare you and society condemn me? I am a natural born predator, mm -hmm. no different than a shark, no different than a hawk. I was born to kill. In fact, God created me this way. So who are you to say that I am violating God's will? I was made exactly the way I'm supposed to. So oh, excuse me, I'm, I'm the bad guy for even saying <laughs> Pardon me, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm messing with God's will here, you know. Um, but that's how grandiose and, you know, incredibly narcissistic uh, he is. Sure. I found David Berkowitz to be very, very different. If you if you didn't if you wouldn't uh, uh, if you didn't see David Berkowitz today and all that you were left with was the early images of, of him when he was first apprehended, he was this sullen, dark, brooding, intimidating young man who um, seemed to just want to uh, uh, create terror in the world. And in fact, when I, I visited with David in uh, in prison, he told me just that, you know, he wanted to terrorize society. He, that was his that was his goal. But his reason for doing this and wanting to do this is very different. I don't think he was born that way at all. And I do not I do not think that David Berkowitz is a psychopath, nor do I think that he is even or was mentally ill in a clinical sense. Okay. What I actually believe is that David Berkowitz, and this is after extensive correspondence and spending several hours with him one-on-one -on -one, uh, in, up at correct, uh, Sullivan Correctional Facility uh, some years ago, that what he really was, was a lost human being. He told me that throughout his adolescence, he was looking for some sort of meaning or purpose in his, in his life. Um, he, he had learned that he was uh, uh, given up for adoption at an early age, but he was lied to and he was told that his mother died in, um, you know, during birth. And so he grew up thinking that his father just didn't want him and gave him away. And he was afraid that his father might even come and try to track him down and hurt him. So David ha had severe emotional issues at a very early age, and he began to act out. Um, he became an arsonist. He, he's claimed to have set more than a thousand fires during his adolescence. Wow. And I think that this was part of his progression, just like BTK had his progression. I think this was part of David's progression. He, I think starting fires gave him a sense of, of um, strength and power that he otherwise was lacking. I think he was very low in self-esteem. Um, and, and what happened is when he graduated from high school, he very quickly enlisted in the military, and he he also told me the reason he did that is he he wanted purpose. He was hoping that he by becoming a soldier, and this was during the Vietnam War years, he would go and he would be a a soldier for the United States, and this would give him a sense of of purpose. But that wasn't his uh, 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 cards that he was dealt. Mm -hmm. He was sent to South Korea 
where he said he had the most boring time of his life. Yeah. <laughs> and he, um, he had his first encounter with uh, a woman, turned out to be a prostitute, and he got venereal disease. And he became very angry and resentful for that. So he told me he came out of the military, he left the army, feeling more despondent and lost than even when he went in. And shortly thereafter is when he began to dabble with Satanism, with the occult, and became obsessed with Satan. And he is what's known in, in profiling circles as a visionary serial killer. A visionary serial killer is someone who believes that they are given their marching orders to kill by some outside authority, a higher power, if you will. It could be God. It could be Satan. Mm. It could be the Martians. It could be, you know, <laughs> sure. it, it, it could be anything talking to them, um, the man in the clouds. But in his case, I truly believe that he became obsessed with this idea of killing for Satan and that somehow it could give him the meaning and purpose that he was lacking. Mm -hmm. It's like he had this hole inside of him, like this, 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 this emptiness that he was trying to fill up somehow. And he told me as he prepared to go out and kill each time, it was like he was a soldier again, like he was getting dressed up to go out to kill yeah. and it gave him, you know, this purpose. But like most other serial killers, the fantasy of the killing and what he hoped to gain from it, was never realized. The, the actualization of the murder never lived up to the fantasy. So it became this cycle, this serial pattern of letdown, and I have to do it again. Oh, again, the fantasy was greater than the reality. And he did it over oh, and yeah, over and yeah. over. So, and, and now I, in my book, and I found out through, through uh, mutual circles that, that David didn't actually like this description that I used, but the way he described it to me, the, you know, this pattern that I just described to you, he described it to me that way. And it sounds very much like the cycle of addiction, you know, uh, uh, the craving for, for that, that thing that's going to make you feel better, but it never lives up to it. And, and then the, yeah. the craving comes again. So I, unlike, unlike a, um, uh, a BTK who is just innately driven, a sadistic individual driven to kill, I see in David that it was much more of a disturbed, very emotionally disturbed individual with self, low self-esteem who was searching for something. And he just went down a very dark avenue. Yeah. Now, another thing, when I was thinking with BTK and parole and rehabilitation, um, I have, from what Dennis told me, one of the last letters he gave me, he doesn't really write too many people anymore, was colitis is so bad and he's on his last legs, basically. Um, yes. He, the last letter he sent, because that's what two, he, he sent one letter, hey, I forgot to send this to you. He used to sign all the letters BTK. Mm -hmm. Well, the last letter I received, he says, I'm putting that moniker to bed now. I'm no longer going by that. I put it to bed. And, but I don't know any serial killer. Oh, let, me, let me phrase it this way. All the study of psychopathy that I've done, the greatest neurologists, neuroscientists on this topic saying it's an uncontrollable urge to kill. You know, they almost like they have to at one point. But yet once to go to prison, I haven't heard of any serial killers killing or trying to kill. So is it able to be suppressed if they can go into prison and suppress it for decades? Why can't they? I mean, specifically with a psychopathic mind, on one hand, doctors say it, it can't be that they have to do it. It's, you know, they don't have like the amygdala. They don't have that stopping rationale. If they're going to do it. They're going to do it. Mm -hmm. 
but they have the ability. I mean, some of them are locked down, you know, with no one, no contact, but some of them are, you know, some yeah. on death row, they still have contact with people. So why is it they can suppress it in a prison when there's still kind of opportunity, not as much out here, of course. Um, and if they don't, if they don't have the ability to feel fear, they should be able to kill in prison. I mean, what is it that they can suppress it? Well, it's um, that's a great question. Um, in the case of BTK, he has no opportunity because he's locked up 23 hours a day. Him, yeah, he's not much. Yeah, time. yeah, he he has no opportunity. Um, he's locked up for his own protection because they call him baby killer, um, and other inmates would do probably very quickly kill him the mm -hmm. same way that uh, Jeffrey Dahmer was killed. And for that matter, they slit. Uh, David Berkowitz's throat at Attica. Oh, yeah. He almost died. Exactly. Um, so um, the, the the answer to your question, I believe, is he um, it's not that it goes away. What did what uh, um, Dennis Rader has done is he has simply uh, changed seats on the Titanic, uh, if you will, it, is he's found new ways to realize fantasy and um, and 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 satisfy himself. He, you know, he lives in his, he, he calls it uh, caveland. caveland. I don't know. Yeah. If you, yeah caveland. I had to laugh and, because you mentioned his artwork and stuff, you know, yeah, you can't, yeah. people don't understand the, you, and I, you know, I say this, you know, it, it's factual, but it's, it's, it's weird and it's horrific in one sense. It's the cutest little poems and artwork and little doggies and children and caveland is, you know, obviously his cell where they call home, but you can't put the two together. <laughs> the artwork no. that he does and the letters and no. who he is. No, no, no. And, 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 you know, that's another whole, you know, discussion about compartmentalization and what he calls cubing, you know, how he's, yeah, he's, yeah. he can be in one moment, he can be the doting daddy and, and, uh, uh, you know, and wonderful man about town. And then in the next second, you know, uh, the other side of the cube is the sadistic killer and he yeah. sees no dissonance between the two, you know, mm -hmm. it's just a completely different frame, um, you know, in his life. Uh, that, that, that's, you know, we could certainly talk about that, but, what he has done and what, what I believe he's done, he wrote me about how he has become wealthy in prison, buying real estate and investing in stocks and all kinds of, of things. He has a, a fantasy investment portfolio and he actually uh, sent me copies of it, you know, because he, he, he doesn't have a computer mm -hmm. and he has he keeps meticulous files, handwritten files on this stuff. Yeah. He follows compulsively the wall street journal and, oh, yeah. and yeah. you know and and cnbc from his cell so this is his new compulsion you know and 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 it, it's fraught with risk you know the stock market and real estate are fraught with risk that's very in keeping with his risk-taking nature um and he's so proud of the fact that he has become wealthy and he says i pay my taxes i pay my taxes on time <laughs> you know and and i'm thinking man you are just completely out to lunch but this is this is his world that he has now created for, for himself yeah. that he controls in his little tiny domain. You know, it's all about control. It's all about him being uh, being very successful. And so he's he's done it to the best of his ability in the tiny little world, eight by ten that, that he lives in. Wow. Just a few more questions. We'll get you out of here. It seems like the and I heard you on the podcast. I don't remember what one you, you touched on it briefly. Maybe we can unpack a little bit more. It seems like the late 70s and 80s, maybe more so in the 80s, was like the heyday for serial killers, you know, the golden era, if you will. Yeah. Does it seem to be like, is that true? And they're just less now? Or like somebody I talked to has been on the podcast numerous times, the happy face killer, Keith Jesperson. He thinks there's probably just as many, but everybody has a, a phone with a camera on it. There's cameras everywhere. He, he jokingly says his favorite TV show is Dexter. 
Um, he's like a BTK, you know, unrepentant completely. Um, yeah. But there's cameras in the woods on a hunter's stand. He's like, he's like, I would got caught right away because I'm just dumping bodies, you know, without even a thought. He's like, he thinks they're still there, just, you know, they're suppressing it a little bit more. Maybe he said like a BTK, finding another avenue because they're afraid to get caught. Or lastly, are they just starting younger? You know, we hear like school shooters, for example, you know, some of them who actually gave interviews and talked to the parents said, yeah, they, you know, they were killing animals. They were torturing kittens. So early psychopathy, is it there, there's less of them or they're just more mm -hmm. suppressing it or they're, they're just starting younger now. I mean, what, what was your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I, I have <laughs> I have considerable thoughts on that, <laughs> and um, and it's going to be a major topic that I that I go into in my um, you know in my show. Um, but my belief is the the serial killers, the fledgling serial killers, the uh, the serial killers of tomorrow are still there. We are simply getting so much better at detecting them and apprehending them than we were. Mm. You have to remember, up until the 1970s, the serial killers were, were not understood at, at, at all. Um, and in fact, they lumped them together. It'd be up until the 1970s, mass shooters like uh, the uh, one Las Vegas. I live in Las Vegas and the, uh, you know, the shooter here at Mandalay Bay, oh, yeah, in, yeah, uh, yeah. Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. um, the motivation of an individual like that is completely different than a BTK or a Son of Sam. Uh, mass, mass shooters in particular are fatalistic individuals who many times are looking to go out in a blaze of glory yeah, in a yeah. one-time event. Yeah. They're individuals who are angry at some person, place, or thing, and it could be society at large, where they, are gonna, where they say, I am making my final stand. You are going to remember me, and I'm going to take you, take as many of you with me as I possibly can. Wow. More than half of these individuals die at the scene of the crime, often at their own hand, um, or what's known as suicide by cop. Um, they're, you know, they're shot at, at the scene. Mm. That is very different than the compulsion that drives a son of Sam or a BTK to kill again and again and again. The last thing they want to do is die at the scene of the crime. They love it too much. They, they have this, this visceral, this, this, this innate craving to kill that they must satiate and they yeah. want to do it over and over and over. So they're very, very, um, very different. Now, in the 1970s, the FBI began to study serial killing in earnest. Um, they formed their behavioral science unit in 1972 there in Quantico and individuals like John Douglas, Bob Ressler and my my good friend, the late Roy Hazelwood studied this in earnest and they began to understand what drives these individuals, what leads them to kill, what they're looking for in their, their killing, which is very different than the standard murder, the one, you know, the one time murder, um, yeah, the, the average killing in the United States is not a premeditated murder. It's, it, it's a, it's a bar fight that ends badly, or it's a domestic, uh, um, uh, 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 scene that ends badly. Um, uh, you're more, you're way more likely to be killed in your house by your drunken spouse than you are to be killed by a serial killer. <laughs> sure. I, I, you know, sad, but true, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, but, 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 but it, it is, it is true. Um, so as they began to understand these individuals better, they got better at catching them. Um, therefore, 
the, 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 the you had something like 650 serial killers throughout the 1970s. They peaked in the 1980s with where there was more than 800 throughout the 1980s. But that began to drop off dramatically in the 1990s to the point now in the, in this decade, there's they're probably in the range of 50 serial killers that have been or are operating currently. Oh, okay. Why is this this drop off? Are the serial killers no longer around? Did they move to another country? No. <laughs> what I believe has happened is we're simply better at identifying them and capturing them, particularly through things like DNA. So I think that it, and it's hard to prove something that didn't happen. But what I, what I truly believe is that we are apprehending a lot of these individuals after their first murder before they even become uh, serial killers. Great and yeah. and I think that a, an excellent example is Brian Koberger, the um, the, yeah. the guy who is alleged to have killed the four students in um, in uh, Idaho. Yeah. He, like BTK, actually started as a um, a mass uh, a mass murderer. BTK killed four people in in a house in you know, the Otero family uh, in his first killing. So he he was a mass murderer before he became a serial killer. I think Brian Koberger, based on what I know about his his evolution, his progression, his history, had the the makings of a serial killer. Oh, if he sure. had not been caught, I think there's an excellent chance that Koberger would have would have uh, killed again. Unlike unlike the Columbine shooters or, um, you know, any of the infamous mass murderers that we that, that we think of who are uh, truly looking for uh, to make a huge statement and then just check out. Yeah. And last question before we can kind of tell everybody what we expect about this uh, amazing live show that's coming up. I like to ask this question to everybody. Um, if you could spend one day talking to any serial killer who has ever lived, you know, past or present, who would it be and why? What would you want to kind of glean from them? Mm, interesting question. Um, I, I, I'm tempted to say uh, Jeffrey Dahmer because he seemed so introspective once he was apprehended. And it seemed as if he really wanted to understand himself. Um, some of the other mo most infamous individuals are just glib. Ted Bundy remained pretty glib um, after he was apprehended. John Wayne Gacy, um, uh, certainly Richard Ramirez. They, they were just very glib and, and would, would not really do any soul searching. Yeah. Whereas uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, it seemed as if he really was trying to understand why he became the, the, the way he did. So I, I think that would have been fascinating. And um, but I, I have to tell you, the, the afternoon that I spent with David Berkowitz was uh, was incredible because I, I, you know, I, I went to Sullivan Correctional Facility on a spring morning and the Sullivan Correctional Facility sits up in the um, uh, Catskills, upstate eight New York. And when you approach it, it looks like a horror castle out of a gothic <laughs> you know, universal horror film you know oh, frankenstein funny. or you know something like yeah. that i mean it's a scary place I, I i got shutters you know uh just you know looking at it and then when i went inside the administrators and the the staff were even more frightening it's almost as if they went out of their way to try to uh, intimidate you so by the time i was led into the the cafeteria where i was supposed to meet 
David Berkowitz. I mean, I was I was a little shaken. I was like, oh, my God. And, you know, I, I had no idea, you know, what I was going to encounter, because, again, my images of, of uh, David Berkowitz were still the, you know, the dark, brooding young man from from his youth. Sure. So when the door opened up and this cherubic looking, fairly short, yeah. chubby, bald headed <laughs> man with rosy red cheeks came bounding across the the oh, uh, uh, the room. I, I thought I was in the room with Santa Claus or, or a uh, or, or a uh, yeah. backyard gnome. He looked oh, like yeah. a ceramic backyard gnome. And he, he grabbed me in a big bear hug and, and embraced me. He insisted that we sit down and say the Lord's Prayer together. And it was I mean, it was surreal. It was it was, yeah. it, was it was really <laughs> surreal. Here I am sitting with with one of the, you know, the worst killers of the 20th century, the most legendary killers. Mm -hmm. And yet. I felt safer sitting there with him than I did in the rest of the prison. It was, it was really, it was really strange. And, and, but moving, moving, very moving. He, he went in great lengths and, and very emotional and with tears streaming down his, his face, uh, his remorse and his, his, uh, sense of, uh, responsibility and wishing that he could, he could take things, uh, back. And, you know, I, I, people ask me all the time, do you, do you believe him? And, and, and I, what I normally say is I have a PhD, but I, but I haven't, I haven't, you know, I don't have the, uh, a degree in, uh, identifying or, or, uh, uh acknowledging a spiritual awakening. You know, I, I, mm, I don't yeah. have, I don't have those tools to, to say, yes, this is a real, um, rebirth, but I will tell you this he is extremely um sincere and and um and and believable in in my uh estimation and what i usually say is if if he is if, if he is making this all up just to um you know give himself a new identity and a you know a sense of of uh uh, uh, no, you know, notoriety, then he's either the Robert De Niro or Daniel Day Lewis <laughs> of serial killer actors because yeah, yeah, he, yeah. he is quite believable. He is quite believable. And, um, yeah, oh, I didn't answer your question earlier. Um, I, I firmly believe based upon the, 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 the terrible things that he did that David Berkowitz is right where he belongs. Um, he's, he's doing his ministry within the prison. He, as I'm sure you know, and, and probably your, your followers know, um, your, your audience, that he is a, um, uh, he helps out his fellow inmates. He's a mobility guide. He teaches people to read. He takes them to the chapel. He, he does whatever he can to try to help his fellow inmates. And at the same time, he corresponds with literally thousands of people around the world oh, yeah. who now see him as a source of hope and redemption, you know? And there's even a website, you know, ariseandshine.org. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That has received millions of, of visits from around the world. Oh, yeah. So if people are getting some sense of strength from, from this and, 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 uh, and comfort, I say let him do it, but let him continue to do it behind, behind bars. Yeah, and I agree totally. I mean, the Christian aspect of it, kind of my area, I guess, of expertise, if you will. I think, you know, the good Lord's using him exactly the way he wants to. I mean, his ministry is bigger than half of the people out here in the free world. Um, his new pamphlet just came out. He sent me like a package of like a hundred of them. Um, his journey from the son of Sam to the son of hope. And yeah. it has encouraged even people who aren't believers uh, has encouraged um, a story for another time. Uh, I didn't know. I know Dana Gray, serial killer Dana Gray. I talked to her almost every day for the past six or seven years. Another amazing story of rehabilitation. I did not know the tie to Dennis Rader. 
I did not know she reached out to him. So we're going to have to have a little chat with Dana later today <laughs> when she calls, reaching out do you to want, him. Do you, would, you, would you like me to share the story? Oh, if you have your, time, uh, certainly. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. Okay, okay. So um, uh, I got in a package uh, some time ago a hand-painted postcard on very heavy stock. It's like a pen and ink drawing of flowers. And, and I got this from Dennis Rader in a package along with some other things and a, and a letter. And I think, you know, what is this? I flip it over and it's, it, it has a, a title on it. It's, it's called Floral Escape. And so I'm thinking, well, that's an interesting title coming from prison, you know, Floral Escape. But it's signed Dana Sue Gray. Unbelievable. I know who Dana Sue Gray is. You know, as you <laughs> said, she's, she's a female serial killer yeah, out in California. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking, what is going on here? So I read the letter. And and uh, uh, Raider says to me, he says, Scott, I got this in the mail from Dana Sue, Sue Gray. Apparently, she has a crush on me. And he, he said, who the heck does she think she is? Oh, wow. She only killed three people. She's not even in my league. So I got re-gifted. Uh regifted this hand-painted postcard from from btk because it didn't meet his standards that's amazing i can't wait isn't that to, incredible i can't wait to talk to her <laughs> about that. <laughs> and, and she i mean she has been i mean she has one of i think chowchilla her, her california corrections facility for women um they're one of the facilities that have it right i mean they're i mean she's life without parole lwop and they're still giving her college education i mean they're i mean she's on the right path she now has religion in her life and completely remorseful so i mean I've known her for maybe five or six years. She actually wrote the foreword to my book, Examining Christianity and the Life of Serial Killers, called Serial Killers in Heaven and Victims in Hell, question mark. Um, wow, I didn't know so that. She, yeah, I think she's definitely on the right path and has been so for maybe the five or six years that I've known her. So she's definitely changed. I mean, some, talking about murderbilia, I mean, she used to sign her underwear for people and sell it. You know, she was, <laughs> she was literally on that side of the, like, really on that side of the fence. But over the past many years, she's really turned a page. Um, and doing very well, uh, which is great, great to hear. But I can't wait to share that story. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, as we you close, um, your show, I believe, is called The Psychology of Serial Killers and Why They Captivate Us. Tell us That's a little correct. bit about the upcoming live show, which I will be there. I don't know if I'll get to see you or not. I don't know how the show is set up, but I'll be at the Keswick Theater um, checking it out live. And I'll give all the information after we close. I'll give an outro with all the, all the information on how to get tickets. But tell us a little about the show and what we can expect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to um uh coming there on Tuesday, May 9th and as you said it's at Keswick at 8 p.m. is the the starting time. So, let me tell you a little bit about the evolution of this. Um, you know, I am uh, I I take every opportunity I I can uh like with you today, Keith, to try to talk about the realities of of serial murder and the realities of crime because there's so many myths out there and so many of them are are actually uh you know, potentially dangerous myths about about uh, uh serial killer personalities and victimology and all that. I like to do what I call myth busting. You know, uh, uh take a particular myth like all serial killers are young white dysfunctional males uh, that look like the Tooth Fairy or Buffalo <laughs> Bill, you know, in Silence of the Lambs, because it's just not true. Um, so uh, this show is going to be you know, everything you always wanted to know about serial killers, but were afraid to ask. But it's also going to be about our fascination with these individuals and some of the topics that we've talked about today. And um, what I hope to do is to really engage in a in a meaningful way, um, uh, the, the audience. Um, there will be multimedia 
aspects of it. There will be um, uh, uh, interview segments with some of the most notorious serial killers of all time, as well as um, uh, short interview uh, blurbs from some of the world's most well-known uh, experts in this area who are friends of mine, uh, people like Mark Olshaker, who was the co-author of the Mindhunter series of books oh, that wow. became the, yeah, the Netflix yeah. series. Mark's yeah, a very good sure. friend of mine. So we're going to explore these issues. We're going to debunk a lot of myths and we're going to, and we're going to go in depth into these, uh, these topics. Um, my, my goal is to, uh, on one hand, educate, but to educate in a really interesting, compelling, and exciting way. You know, if I can elicit several emotions, if I can elicit some, you know, a bit of shock and horror and adrenaline rush along the way, great. Um, if I could get the audience to really introspect and think uh, about these issues um, and victimology, because we don't want to glorify these individuals. We want to remember that they destroy people's lives. Um, and, and then um, also finally, you know, do this in a very entertaining way. Yeah. Um, um, this is, you know, this is an, an evening of entertainment. This is not a college course in forensic science uh, or, or, or uh, a uh, psychology course uh, per se. There will be those aspects of it, but I really hope to have a an exciting, compelling, interesting, and thought provoking evening with my uh, with my audience. I'm sold. <laughs> well, I'm already went, so I already have a ticket, but. I'm not even more excited to go see it. And everybody, uh, especially in the uh, that tri-state area, you know, it's maybe. And I have, and thank you. And I have so many anecdotes. I mean, the like the story, the anecdote of the postcard, you know, the BTK postcard. Yeah. I have so many <laughs> stories like that um, that I that I uh, that I'll be sharing. So um, yeah, and 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 it's interesting. You know, I'll tell you the, the evolution how this happened is um, the, the, the company that is behind it is called Right Angle Entertainment. And they are a, um, a, a company that puts together tours. So, for example, I'm sure you have some uh, uh, AGT, America's Got Talent fans um, in your audience. And um, as people know, uh, AGT takes their their winners and their big stars on the road. Well, this company, Right Angle Entertainment, is the is the company that does that. Oh, uh, the Price wow. is Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the Price is Right game show also travels around the country. This is the company that takes them on the road. So I'm in very good hands. Um, I've been given a once in a lifetime, I think, opportunity, and that is to create a show from from uh, from the bottom up. Uh, I mean, every aspect of it, every detail, every uh, media element uh, has my my uh, uh, my handprint or my fingerprint on it. Um, therefore, if you hate it, it's 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 on me, and if you, and if you love it, it's it's, it's on me too. Yeah. So it's a you know high risk, high reward oh, kind yeah. of situation. But uh, no, I'm really excited. I, I've always wanted to do something like this, and and I am a spiritual person, and I believe that I've been given granted this opportunity. So. I intend to try to really do it justice and make the most of it for the audience. Is this going to be recorded? Uh, video tape? Um, it, 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 it will be for posterity, okay. but um, it's initially we're doing 15 cities and uh, and assuming things go well this spring, then we're going to probably do 50 cities next year. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Amazing. So this is a little bit of a test this spring. And um, but uh, so, so far, so good. Tickets seem to be, uh, seem to be selling. So I can't wait to get started. 
yeah, there, there weren't many tickets left at the Keswick, but there are still a few available. So uh, mm-hmm. I'll provide the link and I'll talk about that in a, uh, in a few minutes, you know, as, as you close everything and where you can get tickets after that. Uh, and lastly, how can people follow you on social media? Uh, great question. Thank you. Um, well, I do have a website, uh, which is docbon.com, D-O-C-B-O-N-N.com. Um, I am at docbon on Twitter, at D-O-C-B-O-N-N uh, on, on Twitter. Um, I have a weekly podcast that is called The Killing Hour with Doc Bon. Killing Hour with Doc Bon. And it's on most of the major streaming platforms, Apple, you know, et cetera. Um, so if you look for that, The Killing Hour uh, with Doc Bon. And in fact, we're just wrapping up now um, an eight-episode series on BTK oh, wow. that includes interviews with his daughter, his his biological daughter, one of the uh, corrections officers uh, there in the you know in his prison, one of the uh, detectives who actually put the handcuffs on him. Um, so we've got some really cool interviews and a lot of uh, you know interesting insights. And we're going to be moving on. Actually, the next series of episodes that we're about to start is going to be on David Berkowitz. Well, I know what I'm doing today. I'm going to take a ride down to the shore, but now I've got a podcast to listen to all afternoon. I'm like, great. <laughs> you know, um, uh, one, one thing that if I, if I could add this, sure. um, that we didn't really um, uh, fully address is you had asked me the question of, um, uh, you know, first we talked about whether they can be rehabilitated, you know, psychopaths. But then you also asked me about uh, uh, individuals who become obsessed with these individuals, take Mm. it beyond, you know, the normal, um, uh, beyond the normal um, uh, interest level. And I, you know, I truly believe, and it, it, the fact that true crime is so popular, we've got all these podcasts. We have the Oxygen Network dedicated to true crime, oh, yeah, Investigation yeah. Discovery, yeah. HLN, A&E, Court TV, on and on and on, fully dedicated to, to crime. And we even now we even have a serial killer week. Oxygen has introduced a serial <laughs> oh, killer week. No. To go along with Shark Week. Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. In fact, I have made the analogy, and I'll I'll make the analogy in the show uh, when people come to see it. I really believe that serial killers and great white sharks have three things in common. They're both rare, they're exotic, and they're deadly. Mm. And we, Mm. in society, I think people have a fascination with things that are larger than life and dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I believe that's true. Some people... now. And I think it's very normal to have an interest in these sort of things. But some individuals take it to the obsessive point and become the fans and the followers and the groupies of, of these individuals. These the people who do that, who take it to that extreme, I really think are missing something in their own life. They're, they're either trying to get their 15 minutes of fame vicariously um, through this individual. Perhaps they hope to inject themselves into the, uh, the case or the, the story itself, which is easier and easier to do now through, you know, web sleuths to, yeah. you know, get involved in these investigations. Mm-hmm. But even more so, I think that there is what I call the um, uh, the bad boy syndrome, um, particularly women who become obsessed with the Charles Mansons and yeah. the uh, Richard Ramirez's. Mm-hmm. I think that there's this notion that 
Yes, he's a bad boy, but he's my bad boy. I'm his soulmate. I'm the only one who understands him. He shares things that that he doesn't share with anyone else. Mm. So for an individual who may be lacking in some self-esteem or worth in themselves, this gives them something. It makes them unique. It makes them celebrities of of, of sorts. Um, So it's not a normal thing. I mean, you know, to be interested in in these topics, I think is very normal. But to become obsessed and to become, uh, you know, the soulmate of a of a Charles Manson, um, and to almost it's it's almost like codependence. It's like yeah. in many cases these beca- these individuals become one in the same, you know, oh, uh, right. with, with with the individual, mm. like Richard Ramirez's um, uh, widow. I mean, yeah. she she was a reporter who started out by by just following the case, yeah. but after thousands of letters, she became totally obsessed and codependent with Richard Ramirez. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely amazing. And and that's when you have guys, like I said, like Charles Mann. This is maybe a, maybe having you on for another show talking about this, but like the Charles Manson who can take advantage and they're so perceptive. It mixes a lot of LSD in the 60s and 70s, but they can take advantage of that and manipulate that. Like I just had Bruce Davis from the Manson family on the show. I'm kind of helping him out with his new book. He's writing a book about everything. Uh, mm-hmm. And Tex Watson mm-hmm. where, I mean, that's like a whole other show of the master manipulators who can see that. They can absorb yes. that. And turn you into, you know, Kona Labiancas, you know, and, and they can, it, it's amazing, the master manipulators. And you think of the Hitlers, the Mansons of the world, the David Koresh's of the world for evil. It's like, man, if they could just turn that for good, you know, well, <laughs> we, we, predators, oh. predators are very good at detecting weakness. Um, and 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 really, what did Manson do? Manson was fulfilling a need. These these people oh, were yeah. lost. They were yeah. they were looking for something. He became their their messiah. You know, in the case of, I mean, you know, you, you mentioned Hitler. In the case of Nazi you know, Germany, it, it the reason I believe that 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 it, it arose is after World War One, Germany was completely destroyed. They had nothing to believe in. They were they were they were completely demoralized, and 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 Hitler uh, gave them something to believe in and and a, and a purpose. Unfortunately, I mean, it could have been it could have been a very good thing, yeah, but instead. Exactly. It became twisted and dark and evil, um, and 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 the same thing, you know, the same thing with David Berkowitz. What if he had become obsessed with God as opposed to Satan? You know, it might be a completely different thing. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, listen, thank you so much. You were so kind and generous with your time today. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, and I cannot look <laughs> be more excited to see this upcoming show. Uh, and thanks again for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you so much for inviting me. And um, I really look forward to uh, May 9th there at uh, at Keswick. All right. There you have it. Dr. Scott Bond. Um, I already have my tickets. I bought two tickets. I don't even know who I'm taking yet. So (laughs) if you're in the tri-state area and you want to come with me, send me a message. I'll take you. Uh, But in all seriousness, um, head over to uh, the Keswick Theater's website. Uh, You can just go to AXS.com. Uh, they're you know they're buy the tickets directly through them. Uh, May 9th, it's going to be awesome. I mean, I can't wait. I think there's about 15 dates. I think he said uh, for this tour. If all goes well, next year we're going to do 50 dates. Um, so it's it's going to be amazing for sure. Uh, so definitely check that out. Go find him on social media. Give him a follow. Tell him you heard the podcast. Um, and literally, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I thought it was a great conversation. I learned so much. Um, uh, you know, once I stopped recording, we talked for about another half hour or so. So <laughs> it was a great conversation. Uh, so again, give him a follow. Go support him. Buy his books. 
Uh, you can find them online, all the information uh, you need. Again, and hopefully I'll see you guys at the Keswick Theater. All right, until next time, see ya! Yeah.